welcome everyone to episode 6 of Dip Dish Discussion. Not a cooking podcast, but a slow spin sidey track special. Where I, Paul, your casual fixed gear nerd, discuss with David, your actual semi-pro track racer from Down Under. Hi David. Hi Paul, how are ya? I am doing good. As usual for our recording, it is early morning. I mean, early morning, it's 9 now, so I'm feeling okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, and on this very special episode of um, Deep Discussions, we have the great pleasure of chatting with the incredibly talented Kiwi from across the ditch, Glenn Catchpole from Bike. How you going, Glenn? Yeah, good, thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, no, thank you so much for giving up your time. Is it currently 7 p.m. in New Zealand? Yeah, 7 p.m. Yeah, Sunday Excellent. night. Well, thank you, Sunday night. Well, thank you for giving up your dinner time for us to have a quick chat with you. Um, just for your excellent insight into the track cycling equipment development world and um, all those good things. Yeah, cheers. Yeah, likewise. A perfect time for a podcast and a glass of wine, I guess. <laughs> oh, yes. It's not quite beer o'clock yet, but <laughs> it's getting there. All righty. So. Glenn, as we already said, you're from Velobike. And I guess for those who don't know, because our community is a mix of, as Paul said, casual fixed gear people, those who might commute to work on it. But we do have some track racers in here as well who would definitely know who you are. But for those who don't, can you just give us a quick rundown of who Velobike are and the team behind it? Yep. Um, So, yeah, just as you said, we're um, based in New Zealand. Uh, we are product design, development, uh, manufacturing experts within the uh, niche sport of track cycling. Um, so a lot of our stuff is very much directed towards um, the Olympics and federations, national federations, very much at that high performance end of the sport. Yeah, so um, why, why track cycling out of all of the things sports you could have chosen like you have road cycling which is massive the tour de france last stage is on tonight um why would you choose track cycling out of all the forms that are out there yeah it's a great question um two reasons really so my background is um i grew up a, a lot around automotive and uh motor racing and such um, very much interested in in that performance and in the aerodynamics and and making things go faster. And I suppose like track cycling is because it's quite a small sport still. Um, there's room for little players to be able to make um, make a difference within the sport. But it's also it's, it's it's like the Formula One of cycling. It's where all of the high tech innovation is is happening and being proven, which trickles down through into road and time trial and, and all the other disciplines of cycling. But because it's small enough and at that leading cutting edge, it's um, I suppose it's more of a passion than anything um, of how the sport drew me into it. It's it's really interesting that the simplest form of cycling usually comes up with like the biggest improvements yeah but yeah definitely see what you mean by track cycling being a lab for everything else afterwards for sure yeah and there's something about the simplicity of track bikes without gears without brakes that 
just opens up so much more room for innovation in a weird way. Like you're, you're pairing back all of the complexity to be able to like really refine the, the, the real basics within what a bicycle is. Yeah. And I was thinking like just, just before we started recording, you were talking about how this time of year is like your Olympics this is where everything comes out, where you release stuff to market. And this is where all your testing and hours and hours of research and development is finally shared with the world. Um, I find Paul and I have discussed this before, but with track, it is so heavily based on that Olympic yeah. schedule that every, the Olympic cycle every four years, which is frustrating, but it's also, I guess, builds up the anticipation a bit more. Whereas I guess in the road scene, I swear companies pop out a new high end frame every year, release it just before the world tour starts, release a prototype. And, um, I guess it's a very exciting time a year out from Paris and um, it's super exciting that we get to talk to you about all the cool things happening at Velo Bike. Yeah, for sure. I was, I was telling you, David, uh, just before the recording that uh, two weeks ago I was in the US and I visited the Zip factory and so I was with Declan who was giving me a tour and uh, he was telling me there is basically a lab in the lab and he was like, yeah, behind these doors, they are five years in advance, like five years uh, in front of everyone else in the rest of that factory. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense that uh, product development would go that far, especially for that, you know, Olympic every four years kind of schedule. Completely right. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you're working on uncharted territory or processes or equipment or materials that are not the status quo for an industry, you're very much looking at that five-year or Olympic cycle trajectory. Um, so I suppose like right now, which is five years out from Los Angeles Olympics, is we're starting to hone in now on what the LA Olympics would look like. And then reverse engineering, I suppose, the thinking of like, okay, if it's going to look like that, this, what, um, where can we fit within that image of what the Olympics are going to look like to be able to make meaningful difference for Olympians and federations and the mass market through equipment and innovation and technology? Yeah, I'm not even, I'm, well, my mind is set on Brisbane. 2032 that's what i'm thinking yeah. about that's only yeah, yeah. that's very close in australian terms close to my hometown so i'll definitely be looking forward to that anyway so we'll kind of i guess take a step back to velobike as the company um when you first started velobike and you started putting out products what do you think was that first product or that first idea which really solidified you guys in, I guess, the track cycling world and the track cycling marketplace? Maybe a tough question, considering how many projects you have going on and products you release, but what was that one that you felt really put you out there? Yeah, um, I suppose that there's two answers to that question. The first would be, like, I suppose, how the business came to be through sort of the origin of, of the products that we developed. And then the second being like what cemented us as a, one of the industry leaders in it. Mm -hmm. um, so I suppose the business started when 
I was back at university and um, that's when I got into track cycling. So I was relatively late into the sport. I was never really a super competitive athlete, but I suppose my passion, as I said earlier, around automotive and such, my passion was in the equipment side of the sport rather than being an athlete. And it's still, it's still the same now. Um, and while I was as an amateur track cyclist, I was developing my own chain rings, um, making my own sprockets for just my own personal use. And then um, because I was making them for myself, I'd make half a dozen more to sell to some of my peers at track and sold them on like Facebook marketplace to the community, the local community. And, and the business very much kind of grew from that. Um, it started with chain rings and sprockets. Um, and I kind of see the business even now as a bit of a ladder. So chain rings and sprockets being the first rung of the ladder, reinvesting all of that, um, not just the, the revenue from it, but the learning, the, the, our audience into developing the next product, the next rung on the ladder. That is a bit more complex, but making more of a meaningful difference to the community. So chain rings are probably the simplest product to make on a track bike. They're um, 2D or 2.5D, um, quite easily machined using um, fairly accessible materials. And then when you're getting into um, the stems, which is the second answer to the question, like what kind of started the brand, um, it was developing a product that was solving a real problem that no one else had, um, which cemented the brand kind of more of on a global level of being an industry leader of, of a technology. So um, backstory is that track cyclists, in comparison to road cyclists, we have a much longer reach on our bikes. Um, and so stems, when you're maxing out your frame size, the only way to increase your reach is to have a longer stem. But at this time, maybe a 150 millimeter stem was pretty much the longest you could buy from anyone. Yeah, um, trying to get them was impossible anyway, so. Trying to get them were impossible and they weren't really fit for purpose. They're quite flexy and just not, not up to what a track sprinter needs in terms of strength requirements. Um, so we saw that as a, as a problem to solve, and that's very much, I think, the first product that um, launched us into this international domain of uh, creating um, world-leading technology for track cyclists. Yeah, excellent. No, because um, personally, I use a long boy stem. I've used two different lengths now, and... For how long they are, you you just think a stem that long would have some flex, but they are incredibly stiff. Just a quick plug of the product. They are very good, and I'd recommend them. Any track sprinters or track enduro guys who need longer reach, they are definitely the way to go. Now, also, we're talking about solving problems for the track cyclist. What Does that bring you the most joy out of the brand, um, solving these problems for not just professionals who are racing for Olympic golds and world championship bands but what brings you the most joy is it helping out the amateurs at that grassroots level or seeing your products go to that 
top level at Olympics or world champs? Yeah, I, I think um, there's a scale on, I suppose, what what brings me joy or brings us joy for all of us that are involved. Um, and each of us have, have different uh, reasons of what brings us joy. Um, for, for me, going back to the technology and, and having a problem that can be solved through a creative solution. Um, so like another example of a product uh, that was quite creative was track sprinters um, are running out of gears. Uh, especially for training and you might you might over gear so a, a, a world level track sprinter might be racing on a 140 inch gear uh, that could be like a 70 14 um i don't know the exact the exact gear combination that would make 140 but a, a very large gear that has a, a very small sprocket a large chain ring and small sprocket so when you're training you, you really need to over gear um, in some scenarios, you do over gear training. And if you've got the biggest chain ring that can possibly fit on your bike, you can only go smaller on the rear. So if you get down to a 12 and you can't go any smaller, that's a problem. Yeah. So we took that problem upon ourselves to developing an 11 tooth sprocket that fits on a standard hub. Um, a lot of people didn't think it was impossible, uh, think it was possible. I didn't think it could have been possible to start with either, but I started to experiment with it and developed what, uh, I, I'm not sure if anyone had developed an 11 tooth rocket before, but what I believe to be the world's first 11 tooth rocket uh, that fits on a standard track hub. Yeah. For that kind of product, my immediate reaction has always been, so for example, uh, for the 11 to sprocket, you have a very, very little amount of material because it has to be like so thin compared to the threading. Um, yeah. And you're going to put that against people that deliver incredible amount of watts on their bikes. Uh, what they're basically human stress test was two legs. Um, mm. So how do you, when it's been through CAT software and uh, virtual stress testing and all of that stuff, um, how do you feel the confidence to be like, right, this can go on a bike now. This can mm -hmm. not even release to market, but this is kind of safe to be on a bike and be tested out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um it, it varies on product to product, but there's always kind of a level of how risky is this product to launch into the market um, and how much testing do we need to do prior to that um, for that to happen. So a sprocket, realistically, how this 11 sprocket was designed was relatively low risk uh, in terms of something completely going wrong. Um, the worst that could really happen would be that uh, the threads on the hub would get damaged. Um, but the, the rider, the athlete, would have a little bit of warning to that. 
just as you would if you're stripping a, a sprocket. Whereas handlebars, for example, are incredibly high risk, especially under track sprinters. Yeah. Um, where they might be deadlifting three, four hundred kgs um, in the gym on a on a weekly basis. So you've got to make sure that these handlebars are going to be able to withstand those kind of forces without snapping in two. Um, so handlebars go through a real stringent uh, safety process, um, including multiple lab tests, two, two independent lab tests through that process. Um, and then uh, various athletes, and we've got a bit of a protocol where there's kind of a, a scale of um, before, before uh, we're happy with like the layout for carbon anyway. Um, doing like a low intensity test, a medium intensity test through to high intensity tests to be able to report back on, on the findings. Uh, so we're, we're leading up to the, the, the optimum use case of the product through, through layers of testing. Um, so that's, there's, there's various forms of testing, lab testing and meeting certifications and meeting strength requirements, and then also usability testing. Yeah, so I guess yeah, that kind of goes into a question we had for later on. So that the process of, I guess, looking for a problem in the market, designing a product around it, does your lab testing, would that be all before you put strap something to someone's bike and tell them, hey, um, so I take it you guys would have product testers before you give them a product and say, hey, go out there give this a whirl, give us some feedback. Is that usually the timeline that you follow with stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of the stuff that we do is in collaboration with federations. Um, so a lot of our, our on-track testing or feedback testing product testers are um, done through the federation collaborations. Um, so a lot of that isn't really public at all. No one would ever really hear about it because it is federations are quite secretive with the equipment that they're working on or wing um, testing just to get that competitive advantage. So a lot of it isn't, um, and because we, we send a lot of this stuff off to the federations, we don't really have, um, we get kind of, you know, have meetings and things and get feedback on, on stuff, but we're not really there testing it sometimes. It depends who it is and what the product is, of course, but yeah. All right. Yeah. So if say like the, the Denmark cycling federation has asked for a certain product to be developed, um, would it only exclusively be tested by them? Is that how that usually runs? Yeah. Um, so I suppose that's a good question on like expanding on our collaborations with federations. Um, so we're not exclusive with any federations. Um, how we generally work as a business model is that we assist federations or athletes in developing equipment that solves their particular problems. Um, so essentially that they get R&D expertise for free um, in exchange for us owning the intellectual property and being able to produce it for a wider market. So unless otherwise agreed upon that, they want it quite secretive until it's released. Um, there are some situations where with other federations that we're working with, 
um, we've mentioned, hey, we're also working on this product. Do you have any input that we could um, both not only solve one federation's needs with the product development, but a second federation? Um, getting a lot more feedback and input into a project makes it more worthwhile and solving more problems. Yeah, excellent. More hands makes lighter work, I guess, essentially with that one. Yeah, so also I think another question which I think could be super interesting to talk about is when you um, say you've got all these products and you're developing them and you might, might be along a various stage for each product, how often are products shelled for a later date? And is there usually a tendency to pick them up later on or is it just kind of random when that need might arise again? Mm, great question, yeah. Um, to date, so the, the business consists of a few people and it's majorly me in R&D. Um, so, and I have plenty of ideas and um, I'm not good at finishing projects. I'm more good at, um, I'm better yeah. at starting <laughs> them. So um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that always starting things but never finishing them. Um, yeah, exactly. There's, there's plenty, there's dozens of projects, literally half finished on a display shelf, um, 3D prints of models and mock-ups and failed ideas and some strange things that are on a shelf. Um, a lot of them may not get picked up, but there's others that do have potential. And it comes down to, I think, priority, what's gonna make the most impact for the least amount of input um, are the ones that that uh, get picked up earlier. Um, but it's also kind of a, it depends on the timing of in, in the Olympic cycle. So this last year, I suppose, has been very much all of my time has been on the products that are releasing for Paris. Um, post Glasgow or towards the end of the year, it's almost kind of reset again. Um, and that's where some of these shelf projects might be picked up. Um, mm. And it's kind of a, a period of time where you can get quite creative because uh, there's just so much time before the next Olympic cycle that um, you can start playing around with things and get a bit out there and do some, some weird things with uh, ideas. Right. I guess the, the amount of like unfinished project or like st stuff that is still in development is just a nice, it becomes after a while, it just becomes like a, uh, a nice set of options to pick from. Like if you have a federation that wants to work on something and you already have like a prototype it's just, oh, I can actually get back into that, but more seriously and treat it as a true professional project. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I tend to find that the federations, with every Olympic cycle, 
And with every sort of major event, uh, a lot of the riders and athletes change. Um, not just the athletes, but some of the, the existing athletes might change bike fits or positions or mm. they might have a new frame set partner and need some form of new integration. So a lot of the work is about optimizing uh, modularity. Right. So op optimizing various athletes or various equipment to work with one another to uh, provide a better system for either uh, compatibility or aerodynamics or um, that kind of thing. And it's usually around the touch points of where the athlete um, touches the bike or how airflow works around the bike and, and rider. So handlebars, pedals, cleats, shoes, um, forks, mm -hmm. that kind of area, yeah. I guess on the topic of modularity with all your new releases with like the Argon stem, which just, it makes so much sense now that it's been released for the amount of years we've seen all these really flash aerodynamic machines with just a conventional stem plopped on top of it yeah it just kind of kills the vibe a little bit of the bike but now that you've released these um argon stems which perfectly fit that frame um i, I feel like there's gonna be a lot of argon owners out there who are going to be very happy with what you guys have put out yeah everybody i has hope so and um hope that it, it is almost uh um, pushes people over the line to select an Argon for their next their next bike. Um, there's not many bikes out there to select from to choose from now. No, there's the not with sort of modern geometry. Yeah, and each of them have their own flaws. Um, there's not one that is perfect. Um, I suppose the the most perfect one would be the Koga, given that. It's, it doesn't have any funky stem system. It's, it just uses or bottom bracket system. It, it doesn't have through axle forks. It's just everything on it is, is just quite traditional, but the, the geometry has been optimized for the, the modern trend. Um, the downside to it is that it, they're quite inaccessible and they're hard to find. Yep. Um, very much so. So there are pros and cons to, to various frame sets. There's not one that is the be all and end all. No, I think when I was looking for a Nux, I had a Dolan and I bought it at the same size of my road frame, which was a massive mistake. Um, and I stretched that out as much as possible. But yeah, as soon as I went to market and I started looking around, but there really isn't a lot of availability unless you've got five figures to throw around yeah. with a top end yeah. track frame. So, um, right, yeah, yeah it, it seems to be, we have this discussion a lot when I'm training or racing, but there's a lot of Avanti Pista Evo twos at our track at the moment, just cause they seem to be popping up all the time. Um, yeah. we've got about four or five of them and most of them are in the same paint job too. So I think that is a major struggle with kind of, your track cyclists who are looking for that middle level option. There just seems to be a massive disconnect between top track frames and even just to yeah. the bottom carbon frames. There's a massive, massive price um, price wall or pay gap in the for middle sure, there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
A lot of the, 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 the frames and the geometry that the mass market is seeking are that Formula One level. It's like, it's like uh, if you compare it to automotive, everyone's seeking the Ferrari where they should be driving the Toyota Corolla. Yeah. <laughs> and there's just no Toyota Corollas that are suitable to the climate. It's like if they, you know, so it's just very difficult for anyone to to achieve what um, the trend is requiring for people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, that Olympic cycle, we do have to wait so long for yeah. those frames. Like I, Like I just now I'm starting to see more BT edges starting to pop up cheaper and cheaper when if you go back four years, they were so hard to get, and even secondhand, they held their value so well. Um, yep. I guess that's the difference between a track cyclist and a road cyclist. The road cyclist seems to have a lot more options more than all the time, but yeah, I yeah. guess I'm hoping that lead with more of like you guys now doing some great things around the track space, hopefully some more companies may look at making some more track frames. Savello, yeah. <laughs> your T4 has been out for a long time now. Um, yeah. But yeah. I suppose um, because it is a small industry for the big players to get into the sport, they're, they're very much looking, all of the big players want to win medals at the Olympics. And to do that, you need to invest in that top level product, which doesn't make it accessible for anyone. And then with each Olympic cycle, all of these frames kind of trickle down. So probably, well, the, the Argon Rios are probably the example of that where it's a two two cycle old bike that is just getting into the accessibility stage now, um, and then with the next Olympics, hopefully some TKOs kind of trickle down to that as yeah. as some more bikes replace it at the top. So it's not uncommon for track athletes to be running equipment that is fifteen years old. Um, yeah just because it's accessible and yeah exactly and it's, yeah, it's the same it with um all the all the all the equipment that attaches to the frame as well cracks and pedals and all sorts of things uh, are still very usable yeah talking about yeah, things excellent. that hold their values um i don't know if you remember that david but i posted it into the discord probably like a few weeks back but um, I don't know if it's a private collection or if it's actually the team, but some old EDS, Karima, and um, Yamaguchi popped up on eBay recently. One of them was oh, an, an, an EDS, uh, Karima, Kugor, but with the fork and the integrated handle in the fork. And that probably went for five figures as well it is such a yeah you know it's a, an it's iconic such... bike but also eds team and also like that integrated fork and everything yeah i think there's such a, a lure around older track frames like even when i look at an old bt cyclone i'm still like yeah that's a that's a it's an old design but i'm like that's a solid and sick looking bike even the old kogas yeah, yeah. i look at them i'm like that's a even though compared to our modern geometry and how far we've come, it's probably nowhere near as fast. Absolutely, but yeah. That allure of an old, really chunky, curvy track frame, just, yeah, 
they're really they're really quite beautiful to look at. Yeah, and if you're a um a, a shorter rider or a smaller athlete, you've got so much to select from at the moment. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking guess, about um, uh, everything changing and everything evolving. Glenn, do you ever worry about the UCI and their tendency to shop and change rules? Or is it something that you welcome as an extra challenge to try and work around? Yeah, that's a, another great question. So um, there's a lot of beef against the UCI. <laughs> and yep, I'm one for it. Since being on the other side of the fence now with being involved in equipment development, um, we're directly involved with communications with the UCI and another governing body called the WSF SGI, World Sporting Federation of Goods Industry or something like that. It's a big long um, word. And they're kind of the advocate for industry uh, towards governing bodies. So they advocate for the cycling manufacturing industry against the UCI to be able to ensure that when rules change or rules are updated, um, that all the manufacturers are not necessarily okay with it, but like they have a say in um, providing feedback to rule proposals. So for example, um, at the beginning of the year, there was the, the new reach rules and handlebar geometry rules for um, bunch riders and, and road uh, that could be extended from five centimetres out to 10 centimetres in front of the axle. So there was um, a proposal that was shared to this group, this community, manufacturers community, maybe two years ago. Um, which we were a part of and could provide feedback on this, especially um, from a track perspective, because a lot of the, the industry are road and time trial and mountain biking. So they had no real idea about why these rules were being implemented. It was very much driven from track. Um, so we were able to provide some feedback on that. But there's a, a mass amount of consultation with the industry. Um, and also federations as well are heavily involved in a lot of these these discussions where it isn't necessarily transparent to the public, which is where I think a lot of the beef comes in and all of a sudden it's, oh, all these new rules are being implemented and now we've got to change half of our equipment because it's not, not legal anymore kind of thing. Um, I, I do wish that they were a bit more transparent with that process. Um, but going back to your question about does it provide extra challenges to work around, I think it is the opposite. It's almost like it provides opportunity to be able to push the rules, especially if things change. Yeah. Yeah, I guess in that sense, you said you're a big fan of motorsport and um, Adrian Newey, the, oh, who does he, designs F1 cars for, I can't remember who exactly, he's been doing it for a long time now. But he said, like, yeah, the FIA rule changes, you can decide to look at it as a barrier or, yeah, you can look yep. at it as an opportunity. Like, how can we work around this? That I guess you're For always sure. looking that grey line. 
um, to see, to squeeze the most out of what you got to work with. That's right. Yeah. So um, that's something that we've been doing quite a lot. Um, I suppose the UCI rules is just a permanent tab in, in my web browser and consistently looking through them yeah. <laughs> um, to yeah. see how to exploit some of these rules. Or I've got an idea and I'm like, could this be manipulated in a way that could be considered legal? So um, what hasn't been released yet are two new products that are very much pushing the limits of the rules. Um, and during the development process, like we consulted with UCI, like, hey, we've got this idea. Um, are you happy with this? And they're like, yep, sweet. If it's done like this, we're all happy with it. So um, there's some exciting things to come with some product launches that are, are very WTF in terms of what the, the interpretation of the rules. Excellent. Is it, are these um, upcoming as in for Paris or further down the for, line? For Paris, yep. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. That's exciting. Exciting. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Well, Best um, is yet to come in terms of product launches. Yeah. Oh, that's sick. That's excellent. So I've been I've been very excited with all the new launches. It's just about getting some money to actually um get around to actually owning a couple of them. Anyway, so um I guess we're on to the second part of the podcast now where I've decided to put together a new little activity. So I did a bit of an Instagram stalk. I've done a little bit, a massive one. I went through all however many posts you guys have and I went all the way back down to your very first post. And I guess this links back up to what we spoke about earlier and how you were first making chain rings because the very first post you guys have is a solitary 55 tooth chain ring. So Back then, how many of you, I think it was five years ago now, I want to say, I can't remember exactly, but what was Velo Bike like at this stage? Were there heaps of projects bouncing around the place or were you just merely testing the waters and seeing how financially viable um, a track cycling development company like yours could be? Yeah. Um, in the early days, so I was working for a design consultancy. So it's essentially... Um, I was doing what I'm doing now, but for other people's businesses, um, developing products for for problems, essentially, and, and manufacturing them. Um, back at, at, in those in those days, um, five or six years ago, um, we had some manual machinery equipment, manual lathes, manual mills, and that's where the the, the business kind of converted to just this hobby into something a bit more substantial. So that's when I started to build a website and started to build a brand. Um, There's a funny story about the name of the brand, really. Um, the, the name started, I already had the domain and the email address from just this little, uh, what would you call it, like, a university group project, mm -hmm. business kind oh, of project, right. which was essentially drop shipping bicycle components <laughs> um, to to just commuters and things. And the name came about from just keywords. So it was like uh, Google get keyword searches and 
what were the most optimum words for people to land on when you're search, searching for bicycles and, and it was fellow bike and uh, it kind of just morphed into what it is today today and I've never really lo like loved the name um, and so we're very much kind of converting it into more of a look now um, so I'm bringing in a monogram and a logo um, that is sort of um, emulating this techie feel, this almost science fiction or space age kind of look. Um, whereas moving away from, from the name as such. Um, so anyway, off, off tangent a little bit there. But at this time, yeah, um, yeah, had this website, had this domain and um, sold chain rings essentially through it. And it was fairly local, just to New Zealand. A few went over to Australia and such. Um, yep. Then, yeah, just grew, grew the business from there. Excellent. I feel like, I don't know if this is just a experience for my younger self, but I remember making my very first email and it was because I wanted to start a YouTube channel like all 13-year-olds wow. did playing Call of Duty. Yeah. So I had, it's, I'm not going to say the name because someone will find it and the videos are still up out there oh somewhere. Oh my God. Were you the and guy you that go, put like trick shot compilations and that shit? No, I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't good enough for that, mate. <laughs> but um, yeah, then you go, go to your first job and you get your resume out and then, yeah, your video, your um, email address is like something gaming and you're like, yeah. Nope. That was me. Um, <laughs> it gives a similar kind of vibe that you're talking about there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, look, you look back on it and you're just like, man, this is cringe, but sometimes it's too late to change, eh? Yeah, exactly. I mean, as a customer, when I heard the term, I thought Velobike was a perfectly acceptable name, but that story makes yeah. it so much better. It's, it's kind of I like when you works. think of like Facebook or Twitter or something like that. Like who would ever name a business Facebook? It's like right. yeah. face in the book. But over time, like the brand just turns into something. It becomes its own identity. And that's almost what I hope anyway that our brand has become. It's, it's turned into more of an image than a, than a name. I feel at some point for all the brands we know in cycling, the, the name is just like a very, very small part of the identity. If you took any mm. bike brand uh, was a name that makes literally no sense to 99% of the population, for example, I don't know, like BMC. Nobody knows what BMC fucking stands for, but I definitely yeah. know BMC visual identity, um, their newest release and all that stuff. So the name is just such a small, very small part for sure yeah 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 brand identity is something that um is very important and something that we've been trying to focus on over the last few years yeah yeah excellent oh that's um that's a nice little i guess gem for us to talk about later on that's um <laughs> the origins of the velo bike name anyway yeah. so moving up a bit more forward so scrolling to your instagram page I start to see, I guess, heaps of chain rings, heaps and heaps of chain rings. And then you start to show some bar development more on the sprint bar side of things. So it is indeed from what you've shown in on the in, uh, Instagram compared to what you guys release now, it is obviously a different shape and a different style. 
is there still a plan to develop an entirely in-house developed <clears throat> velo bike sprint bar? There's always a plan. Yes. It's always a plan. Excellent. That's all I can say. Always That's working all on we need to know. Handlebar. Whatever there is to develop, Glenn will be developing it. <laughs> yeah. I think I think handlebars Excellent. are one of those things that because they're so personal and everyone uh, everyone's bodies are different shapes, everyone's grips are different sizes, um, everyone is more comfortable in different positions. There's always room for different handlebars in the market and you can optimize as much as you want with handlebars, but there'll be some people that it is the opposite of optimization for. Right. Um, so there's, there's, there's always room for new handlebars. Um, and especially with the new rules, with new, uh, the profile sections that are not three to one anymore, it's, uh, effectively eight to one. Um, you can scrap pretty much all the handlebars in the market now and, and redevelop something that is superior to everything out there just from yeah, the, well, the new rules. Yeah. That um, new Koga one piece kind of goes down that route, doesn't it? That is a fat, super wide top end on those Kogas. I think we've already discussed yeah. this in an earlier episode. Uh, sorry, David, I'm going to make one more no, little right. bubble. Uh, Glenn, uh, as someone that is like constantly looking towards like the top lead of the industry, um, what's your take on the new boom? Because I'll call it a boom of... 3D titanium printed handlebars. Yeah, um, that's that's an interesting discussion. From my experience and all of those that we collaborate with, 3D printing titanium isn't the right application for especially handlebars or high stress components. Um, there's kind of two ways to look at, at these components really. Because track cycling is a niche industry, there's not much volume there or relatively less demand to be able to make things in comparison to um, road cycling or mountain biking. And then the second is that like there's highly optimized components specific to riders. And so if you've got highly optimized parts and very little demand it's quite expensive to make anything um, such as carbon fiber where it's more intended for a higher volume manufacturing process making molds and and uh, the economy of scale doesn't lead to making one-offs so that um, leads to making uh, handlebars or components using additive manufacturing processes such as 3D printing where the cost to make a one-off um, is much lower, not including the design time, we'll keep that separate, but physically manufacturing the part um, doesn't cost any more to make one as it does to make a hundred of them. Um, they're pretty much identical in pricing. Whereas carbon, if you're making a hundred, you could split your individual cost by 100x. Um, the downside to 3D printing is that it's quite porous. So it's effectively like a sponge. 
And so, because it's mm -hmm. it's fused together, all the the particles are, are fused together. There's a lot of gaps in the air between all the all the components. So you're you're creating a very fragile component. Um, the the process is excellent for proof of, proof of concept. You can make a one-off cheaply, test it, prove it. But I don't see it as the right process for more volume production, especially from our, our market where we're producing equipment, not just for the Olympic Federations, but manufacturing it for commercializing it for everyone and making it accessible for everyone. It's just not the right application for um, where we sit within the market. Mm. There's definitely purpose to it. There's definitely like, there's benefit to it and purpose to it. Um, where we sit, it's, it's not beneficial. Yeah. Oh no, excellent. Now that's, um, I guess, cause whenever, yeah, when we looked at Ganner's our record and the amount of three printing, 3d printing of components went into that, I guess, yeah, it does. If you want super fine adjustability and you want everything to be perfect for that individual, sure. Um, I guess it's a bit more viable than chucking together an entire mold for one person. But yeah, when you're talking, you're trying to put together products for a, an actual marketplace with a wide range of people. Yeah, it doesn't. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't. I guess meet those demands, like you said. And I suppose, like reflecting but, back on um, the Olympic level bikes and how they're just so out of reach for the mass market, it's it's becoming even more specific to the athletes. Uh, which is reducing the uh, the access to the mass population. So, for example, like the Hope Lotus bike, um, there are 3D printed components to that bike. Um, I don't believe, from my understanding, that the Tokyo version of the bike had variations dependent on rider. They might have had variations dependent on pursuit and, and sprint, um, but yeah. not dependent on rider. But there is the chance for that bike to be slightly modular in its construction and they might be doing that for um, their next bike for Paris, um, which limits how accessible, how, how accessible it is for the community. Yeah, and also I guess this is more of a side and a question I had. So when you do release a product, I know the UCI says it must be oh available on market to the consumer is not the exact wording but um for a company does it just have to be used and shown at a world cup or does it have to be a world championship or is it, as long as it's a high enough uci event they don't really mind so for the olympics everything has to be ridden at competition at a major UCI event. So some equipment has already been registered through um, like Jakarta, Egypt, Milton. Yep. Um, the last chance for Olympic equipment qualification is Glasgow. So that's where the majority of stuff is coming out because this uh, Olympic cycle was shorter than all the other ones given that um, Tokyo was delayed a year. So, um, all the manufacturers are, are just squeezing out as much time as they can before that deadline. Um, and also, you don't want to share your your secrets too early on. You want to keep yeah. them close to your chest because um, 
if somebody debuted something at uh, was it Egypt, the first Nations Cup, I think in February, you've got almost six months to continue R&D, especially if you're doing 3D printed parts, which um, you could make a product in, in a week. Uh, you've got all this time for, for more R&D, whereas at Glasgow, this is that everything's locked in for Paris now and uh, you've got 12 months, all the federations have 12 months with a big, big, big spreadsheet of all of the equipment that's been registered and pick and choose. So effectively everyone's on the same, on the same level playing field in terms of equipment and accessibility. Awesome. Yeah, because I remember oh, this would have been pre-Tokyo there. Somebody did a news article. I know you guys used to do um, blogs on equipment shown at World Cups and stuff, like going through your Instagram, they had a photo of all the different sprint bars pre-Tokyo um, and all the different shapes and styles that were being tested at um, World Cups and stuff. So I just had a question because I knew that I have seen new products race at World Cups, but, yeah, I just never thought that this is it. Glasgow is your last opportunity to get something in the mail and get it tested and mm. ridden. That's right, yeah. Like, so this is essentially uh, the manufacturer's Olympics. This is where we're debuting everything and showing what we've been working on over the last three years where the athletes have still got another year of preparation. Yep, alrighty. Uh -huh. um, I guess the next one, I think, possibly your most iconic piece um, would have to be the bunch bars. Um, I can show most track people what are these bars? They got bunch bars made by Velo Bike. They just know that that's your design. Um, and we have seen an absolute explosion in the last year or couple of years of track endurance bars. As you said before, there's always something in development, but no doubt there would be a bunch bar V2 or something along those lines being developed. Uh, yep. Um, th there's definitely like an aesthetic that is um, prevalent with that handlebar. And when you see it in photographs from even the other side of the track, you can go, oh, yeah, that's that handlebar. It's very iconic in that way. Um, and that's the form that we've got intellectual property on and have actually enforced protection on. Um, there have been, there has been a case where somebody's attempted to, to copy that aesthetic um, that we've been able to protect, which is, um, yeah, that was quite a, an interesting process having to go through that too. Yeah, alrighty. That's, um, I didn't know you guys had the actual like intellectual property on that, but that's um, good to know because I guess I do have another question. It does jump down a little bit, but there has been a couple images of a Lotus Hope-like setup, like a wide fork prototype that's been popping around your Instagram. Now, you're saying that you want to try and implement that onto a, I guess, a more standard track frame, have a fork that you can pop into most frames and ride. Is there any kind of red tape you have to bounce around to get a product like that out there or does Lotus and Hope not have any kind of patent on a product like that? Yeah, I believe that um, Hope have a patent on that fork. However, a, a patent is, there's two strengths to a patent. Um, one is it's only as strong as you're willing to protect it by. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so any, anybody can copy anything. A, a, a patent is only useful if you're going to actively enforce lawyer uh, protection and, and and bring you know some some lawyers on board and, and such. Um, the the second is that there's prior art. Um, I haven't done a lot of research on that particular thought in terms of prior art, but if something has evidence that something similar has been done prior to it, even if it was uh, in a completely different industry. So for example, motorcycles, um, if there was a, a, a fork or a fairing on the outside of the forks that was intended to um, divert airflow around the rider or something like that, then that is a form of prior art where you can't necessarily protect something that's been done before, right. uh, even if you do have a patent on it. So if, if somebody were to compete against Hope and bring out something similar that does a similar thing, um, they should be prepared with a whole bunch of evidence that goes, hang on, your, your patent is essentially void because you've copied these people. So if we're copying you and you're copying these people, then your argument's mute. Um, you can go quite deep into, into the law around, around IP protection and patents and such like that. But um, going back to, I suppose, our fork, is that this was one of those shelf projects. It was purely just, this was a lockdown project, actually. Um, I was just experimenting with just shapes, really, and 3D printing um, just a, a fork concept um, that never went past the, the, the concept you've seen in those images. Any plans to pick it up later on? Maybe, possibly. Yeah, it would be interesting. Um, there, there's definitely nothing that we've been working on in the recent past to do with that shape fork. Um, I think that there's requires to do a whole lot more testing around it. I'm still not confident personally how much benefit it has. Um, it's got a whole lot of downsides to it, a lot of compromises within that design. Um, stiffness, strength, weight, um, and the benefits of that aero advantage, if there is an aero advantage, might be negated by all of the compromises it has. So I think that the, if anyone were to go down that route, that there would be a whole lot of validation and testing involved to be able to justify it. All right. Um, continuing on your Instagram, we've seen also um, cranks recently. Uh, and you made a post where you were answering some of the questions. So apparently they're carbon cranks, they are SRM compatible, narrow Q factor, etc. Um, and do you think the track crank world is incredibly outdated considering the most popular cranks are still like Dura Ace and Sugino 75? 
and are still a forged alloy with a square taper or octoling setup. And then you have mm -hmm. like the look Zen cranks that are able to fit on only look bikes. But do you think there is right now a market for a new king of cranks kind of? Yeah, um, I think this also comes back to the right application for um, a technology and cranks being uh, probably the most stress induced com component on, on a track bike. Is carbon the right material to be able to like, should cranks be made out of carbon? Mm. Um, and there's nothing wrong with Sageno 75 cranks that have had the same design for I think the last 25 years or it could be 30 years now. Um, they're still winning Olympic medals. So the Dutch yeah. uh, on the team's front at Tokyo were on Gyrorace uh, 9100 I think or no 7710 cranks. Um, yeah there's nothing wrong with that technology and they work and they're tried and tested uh, bottom brackets are still readily available, uh, really good quality, serviceable parts. At the level that majority of athletes are riding at, there's no need for them to have anything superior to that, in my opinion. Um, I think if they're good enough for the world's fastest sprinters, mm they're good enough for everyone, even though there, there could be more optimization with it. But just going back to what they are and what they do, they do their job really well. Yeah, because I'm currently on Jurace pedals and also Jurace cranks, and yeah, they have been the best ones I've ever ridden. And I've been through a couple of different options now. Um, but yeah, you just a bit of a story when I was racing in Tasmania, um, there was a Malaysian rider there. He actually had put, oh, I don't know what it was, but he had filled in the gaps between the arms just to smooth them off a bit and make them a bit more aero. I'm thinking, could there not be some kind of small gain there? But as you said, if it's good enough for the best sprinters in the world, it's going to be good enough for any average Joe sprinter as well. David, you're on Octolink right now? I am, still yes. and they are uh, Octolink, yeah, and they Octolink. are. I've got the full race bottom bracket, and they are excellent. They are brilliant. I really, yeah. really, really yeah. like them. Um, I always recommend when anyone asks me like where to buy cranks, what cranks to buy, I always direct them towards um, NJS Export. They're all yeah. the um, yeah, yeah. X Karen yeah. cranks, and uh, they're probably the most affordable. Duro-ass cranks, also Juno 75 cranks that you can find. Yeah, hence why you can never find 165s on the um <laughs> yeah, website because they get snapped up yeah. so good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. like... Alrighty. Um, I guess the next item that we start to see pop up a lot on your Instagram is the, the ever-popular and brilliantly named Long Boy Stem. So as I said, I've ridden two different options now. They are stiff, they're super neat, and they're super aero as well, just positioning-wise. Now that we have this change in reach rules, which are, I guess, not super outdated, but they're a bit older now, 
has the long boy seen any success outside of the track world like has there been any road riders contacting you asking for long boys for their road bikes yeah um there have been quite a few road cyclists jump onto them now just to get that extra reach i believe there's a continental uci team on them i don't know what that team is or who it is i don't really follow road all that much um as i said at the beginning like my, my background isn't cycling um it's just yeah I, I never grew up around the sport so a lot of the teams I, I don't really follow the tour de france i follow track and that's that's our niche that's very much what we focus on so i don't know a lot of um what people are riding on the road or what the what the trends are however um there are there are people that are riding the wrong boys yeah yeah i've seen a couple of photos of mainly the ara which is a local conti team in australia and a couple of their riders who funny enough have a track background who are now using the long boys on their road bike yeah yeah all righty well i guess you want to take the next question paul yeah uh because uh okay so cranks haven't moved in years um and we're still using durace okay but <laughs> Uh, one thing that I thought was really, really exciting was your partnership with uh, New Motion and the new Enduro system. So, New Motion have been active online since the end of 2020 uh, and have been producing chainring cogs and um, the Link Drive system. So, how long has the collaboration been going on for? And what's the role? What role does Velobike play in this business business partnership, however you want to call it? Um, and also, is the Andrew setup suitable for sprint riders? Because people keep saying that it'll skip a twos or it's just slightly different. Like, how does it differ? Right. Yeah. So um, we've been. Uh, partnering with New Motion Labs from quite early on in their journey. Um, yeah, it would have been around 2020, late 2020. Unfortunately, their technology didn't qualify for, para, uh, for, for Tokyo because it needed to be commercially available 12 months prior. Um, so it just missed that cutoff. Um, however, in the last few years, um, I've been very much working on refining this innovative tooth profile that um, reduces your drivetrain friction by up to 50% of the original friction on a high-end drivetrain. So how it does this is that um, it's using a technology that they call uh, dual engagement. So. If you can picture um, two rollers on a chain, and traditionally on a on a um, on a standard um, chain ring, the rollers rotate through the trough of the of the tooth. So it enters on a on a chain ring. The the tooth is behind the roller. It's pushing mm -hmm. the roller, um, and then it's exiting in front of the roller. So it's rolling through the trough of um, of the tooth. So so sorry, it's it's entering 
um, at the front of the tooth and exiting at the back of the tooth in front of it. So it's rolling through the trough of the tooth. So this dual engagement system is using two rollers to lock onto one tooth. And so this is reducing your rolling motion of the roller rolling through that trough of the tooth as it goes around the circumference of the chain as it's rotating around, which is where a lot of the friction is generated. So it's, um, a lot of people, going back to your question about people thinking that it's skip tooth, it very much looks like that because it has half as many teeth. But instead, you're, instead of having the rollers, each roller connecting to one tooth, you've got two rollers connecting onto one tooth. Um, so you're halving the amount of teeth, but you're maintaining the same amount of contact pitch. It's quite difficult to explain. It's very, uh, yeah. you've got to look at it through diagram. Yeah, I found it yeah, when I found the New Motion Lab Instagram oh, a couple years ago now, and I was looking at the chain, the the system they were producing. It was I was way out of my depth trying to look at it and visualize how it worked. In um, there, I'll just expand a little bit more on that question as well. That their um, technology, its purpose is more in industrial applications. So production lines right. where um, it's increasing the service life, life of the equipment. So there's less downtime. When you've got downtime in a production line, um, it could be costing you tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars per, per hour. So by increasing the efficiency, increasing the durability of these components, um, you're reducing the downtime life. So where it comes into track cycling is that they're wanting to prove this technology um, at the top level of a sport that uses drivetrain technology, um, and that's track cycling. There right. we go. Do you think we'll see any of them in um, in Paris? Yep. Um, so they directly have relationships with various federations. Um, so I believe that there are some federations that will be running their, their drive trains. That is exciting. Exciting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I guess the next one, this is quite a personal question for myself and I'm calling it the Queensland Commissaire Special Chain Tensioner. Um, so I found out, I guess through Facebook, about that how chain tensioners the i guess the common chain tensioner which you guys sell a lot of other companies make as well is no longer legal or safe to use in a race setting which mm. kind of rubbed me the wrong way because i'm like i don't have built-in chain tensioners into my frame um yeah has this rule that you guys obviously a problem popped up you came up with a solution and a solution that works quite well because i think did byron davies use it for his kilo national champs yeah that's right yeah so yeah. um they got told to remove their chain tensioners he was in a warm-up yeah. um doing a flying 200 entry down the banking behind a motorbike and pulled yep. a wheel at top speed came off and slid <laughs> down the track this was the day yeah. before nationals um Far all out. because all because they weren't allowed to use chain tensioners so my argument there is that um how unsafe yes, as it become exactly now that you're thoughts. reducing um, the safety of 
of the sport by taking off a component that is considered unsafe. So it's a bit of a paradox there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, um, oh, when that rule first came out, I ended up speaking to Matt on the phone about it. And I'm like, why? What is the point? And I'm like, what is actually wrong with it? And you're saying it's something about the protrusion off the frame. But I'm like, mm. if you're that close to someone's back end, there's probably going to be an accident anyway. So, yeah. Um, has this rule really been enforced anywhere else that you yeah. know of? Or is so, it just has been? So I think this, this is another example of like miscommunication between the UCI and um, the Chinese whispers through commissaires through into the mainstream market. So the rule that is actually determining this is that there's a frame geometry um, diagram and within the frame geometry it, it talks about how everything that is either the frame or connected to the frame has to fit within certain boxes. Now the two boxes that um, are around the, the rear dropout, you got the chainstay and the seat stay. The termination for the chainstay box has to be no more than 60 millimeters behind the rear axle. So if your wheel is far forward in your dropout, your dropout can only be 60 millimeters long. And so if you've got a chain tensioner behind that, that's going to stick out 60 millimeter, uh, past that 60 millimeter threshold. So that's that's the legal rule of why chain tensioners aren't allowed, is because they stick out further than 60 mil past the axle. Okay, yeah. Again, as you said, it's a it's a device that is supposed to make the sport safer, which then has been removed in the world in the name of safety. Which again, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, boggled my mind when I first heard of it. Anyways, away from that, I'll get too pissed off about it. So <laughs> we'll take the next one. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about the uh, the hundred tooth chain ring. We love it, but was this just like a meme build, or is it an actual testing ground for larger chain ring sizes? <laughs> um, it was very much a meme build. Um, more of a promo thing than anything. So we collaborated with uh, with our retailers. Really, um, we we'd send them out to a bunch of our retailers. Um, some of them we um, have signed through national federations. Um, so one in particular, working with Australia on cycling. We uh, had all the all the athletes get it signed. There were actually three three chain rings. Had all the athletes sign all three. One of them I was cycling kept. Um, one went to our Australian retailer, and the other one we got back in our studio. So um, yeah, more of a display item. They are usable. Um, more of it intended as a display thing rather than than a functional product. It's a good pizza plate. It is an excellent pizza plate, yeah. <laughs> so is that um other one sitting in gear shop right now, is it? It is, yeah, yeah. So Matt's got to go have there. a look at it. Yeah, awesome. yeah definitely do. Fuss of it. That's one more reason. Good. For it's me a to great visit. talking point. Yeah. All right, and I guess the last, because you guys were releasing so much stuff in that, because I think I messaged you a couple of weeks ago now 
Um, and then it was during that time period where you guys were releasing heaps and heaps of products leading up to the um, World Champs and the Olympic Games. So you've been treating us fans super well recently with a lot of drops. Feels like it's Christmas in July as it is right now. And those um, nude long boys, because I know with the look frames, if you want to go and get a nude look stem, it's it's like a thousand bucks Australian dollars, I believe, for a look mm. stem. And I think they're carbon as well. Um, and also the argon option as well. You no longer have to run a standard looking road stem, which kind of ruins the aesthetic of the frame. Have they been picked up really well by the public so far? Like, have they been selling super well? Yeah, a lot of them, because um, they're, they're both still a relatively new product. A lot of them we had reserved or earmarked for federations to take to Glasgow. Um, yep. Ab- above above everyone, they're all uh, the, the federations are highest priority. Um, that's our key audience. That's our key demographic that we develop and manufacture equipment for. So they have to come first. Um, so it's a bit hard to. There are a limited quantity available to the mass market. Um, a lot of them have been selling well. Some some sizes are out. Um, but it's hard to say yet how effective they will be or at what point we will break even on the development of them uh, within the mass community. Yeah. All right. And also, you guys, um, so you released the new pedal. Um, so you have relatively new straps and you also have the new pedal bracket system to securely mount them without having to use cable ties, which has a number of disadvantages. You could bust one while sprinting, or what I've done is I've got a lot of little scars on the back of my car from where I've scratched myself on said zip ties. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a pain. But you said there that you, in a post, you were replying to someone's comment um, that there are a select number of pedals that you would recommend for track usage. So for track sprinting, like standing starts, like the amount of load going through your pedals, what are some of those models that you would recommend for a track sprinter? Yeah, um, the, the gold standard, like what pretty much every track sprinter at the Olympic level are on, are on uh, Dura-Race SPD pedals, uh, which is what the, what the, the strap mounts have been designed for. Um, I think if you're taking sprinting seriously, they're the pedals that you really need to be on. Um, they're stronger than pretty much every other SPD pedal um, in the market and including other brands. Uh, the next step down would be Altegra. Uh, if you're an amateur sprinter, that's probably what I'd recommend, uh, if not the Duras. Anything lower than that um, and other brands as well, such as Look, I would kind of consider as not that fit for purpose. For the money that you're going to spend, you you probably should be either on Altegra or, or a Jura pedal. Um, yeah. For yeah, track I've sprinters in particular, with... like, it commonly break stuff. So yeah. if you can limit how much stuff you're going to break, you're going to limit how much injuries you're going to have. Yeah, I know I've 
wasn't a major failure, but I've busted a set of Ultegra pedals, but I had them on my road bike for a couple of years and chucked them on the track bike because I'm like, yeah, Ultegra is better than whatever the other smaller models are. So I chucked them on there. Yeah. One night it was creaking like a bastard. It just would not stop. And I took the pedals off and they just had tiny, tiny hairline fractures. Yeah. Um, I, it looked like from a standing start and I'm like, oh, goodness. So it, I've never thought I would be one breaking equipment, but I guess a pedal does suffer mm. a lot of abuse over its life lifespan. So I think it's like everything, especially with track sprinting, that you're fatiguing stuff over time quite a lot. Um, with every effort, you're putting a lot of strain on it and it's deforming and reforming back into its original state. And uh, the more that you do that, the more um, brittle the materials get, the more likely um, they are to, um, to, to break. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. When it comes when it comes to safety, you you want to spend money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Second hand may not always be the best option. No. I guess last question that I had as well. You've already kind of answered this, but um, so you have how many more drops? So it's two questions here. How many more drops until world champs? Um, and also, can you give us any? Any teasers, throw us a bone maybe of what they could possibly be or are you going to keep it under lock and key until they're posted on the Instagram? Yeah, um, so as of time of recording, there is one, two, three and a half new products dropping. And a half. And a half, yeah. <laughs> so that, that will uh, confuse a few people, but uh, I'm, I'm sure by the time that this recording is released, maybe that will be evident. Yeah. Excellent. All right. All righty. Well, well, we got our monthly sufficient dose of news, I guess. Track news. That's, a, that's already, like, yeah, a good amount of info for... The future of Villabike and the future of the sport, Paris, exciting new releases. Uh, man, I'm stoked. This is going to be great. Um, I guess the final segment we do have, only take a couple minutes, is I know you work with a lot of federations and obviously you're a New Zealander as well, but are there any, any picks that you have for Worlds, any riders or teams who you want to see get up? and pull on some world bands or any any upsets you could possibly see coming into world champs at Glasgow in a couple of weeks? Yeah, um, I, I think the, the, the most hotly contested event will probably be the men's team sprint. Um, yes. You got the reigning champions, the Aussies, and you got the, uh, the Dutch who are wanting to regain their rainbow jerseys. So I think that those two will be first and second. I don't know who's going to be first and who's going to be second, but um, one of the two will be incredibly happy about that result. I'm always rooting for the Kiwis. Um, I think that it indirectly their performance indirectly helps our business as well. Um, not just because we work with them, but locally here, the more funding that, uh, well, the more, the higher results that 
Cycling New Zealand get, the more funding they get, the more amateur athletes um, are involved in the sport. Um, and the amateur athletes are our audience. That's how we make revenue and how we how we have a business and can continue to invest in R&D for the federations. So um, it's kind of growing the sport through through results, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. I too want to see the Australians get up. And Richie Hoffman, hopefully they can all pull it through. They'll be, I'll be watching and I'll be cheering loudly for that. So, well, I yeah. think that brings us to a close anyways. Um, you want to take us out, Paul? Yeah, um, it's just uh, the the Aussies. Yeah, but I really like the Dutch. <laughs> yes, you can't <laughs> hate them. They're they're lovely people too, by the looks of things. So I really like that. <laughs> All right, people. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for uh, being our guest this month's uh, on Dip Dish discussion. Um, great, great bunch of news uh infos and uh i hope everyone who listened to this enjoyed it as much as i did and yeah that's gonna be it for this episode we'll see you when we'll see you have a good one bye bye see you guys thanks for listening